This episode of Not What I'm Talking About is brought to you by NottinghamLive.co.uk. Nottingham Live is the resource for finding out the latest goings on in Nottingham, from gigs to stage shows, book launches, and more. You can find out announcements, reviews, interviews, and more for what's going on in Nottingham. Head over to NottinghamLive.co.uk for all the latest Nottingham happenings. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Not's What I'm Talking About. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode with Helen Stead, director of Nottingham Comedy Festival. The Comedy Festival kicks off tomorrow, Friday the 12th of November. Head over to NottinghamComedyFestival.com to see everything they've got going on, over 100 performers across the 10 days. Uh, Whatever comedy is uh, your sort of lean-in, You'll find something to check out, and there's loads as well of local performers, new talent. Maybe you'll find a new favourite, and I'm sure you'll agree as well that we could all all do with a great laugh at the moment after the last couple of years and a good night out. So, uh, again, head over to NottinghamComedyFestival.com. All the gigs are on there that are taking place over the festival course, which kicks off tomorrow. This week, I had a chance to have a chat with somebody I've known for about a decade now uh one of my favorite nottingham musicians and performers the uh, one and only rob green uh rob actually announced last week that he's got a gig coming up at the bodega in february a headline gig and we had a chat about that and it's on that'll mark almost well just over 10 years since his uh parley games ep launch at contemporary which was one of his very early gigs. I was at that gig. That's when I first met Rob. We had a chat about that. We had a chat about uh, his career with some of the key moments of his career. We talked about lockdown and sort of the sort of lockdown he had and some of the revelations he had about his emotional well-being, his work-life balance, where he sees himself going, etc. This was a very open chat. Rob was uh, went very deep in, in some of the important moments of his career. And some of the things he's had to address and where it's where he finds himself now. Uh, so it was great to chat to Rob. It's always a good to catch up with him. Uh, and I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. Uh, we've got more episodes coming up. Find out at the end. Next week's episode I'll be announcing at the end of this one. So make sure to stay tuned in once the interview finishes. Uh, and we've got plenty more. As ever, always head over to... Uh, facebook.com forward slash nots what i'm talking about which is the first place you'll be able to find out where guests are announced and um, we're also on twitter at ng digital uk and obviously all episodes of the podcast are available at ngdigital.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts once again thanks for tuning in this is nots what i'm talking about with rob green Welcome everybody to another episode of Not What I'm Talking About. My guest today is uh, Nottingham uh, musician, songwriter, performer, uh, musical director uh, Rob Green, who I've known for hey! 
Hello, Rob. <laughs> Thank you so hey, much you're... for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's what we like. So, uh, yeah, so um, to kick things off, Rob, I thought we'd talk about this week you announced um, you've got a gig coming up at Bodega, 18th of February next year, I believe that is. That's right. That's and- right. Excellent. So that's that's pretty exciting. Obviously, uh, fantastic venue at hometown gig. Mm. And yeah, uh, and ten years after my first ever EP launch, so it's like it's a very sentimental, um, sentimental show to be sort of like coming home. I mean, I've been performing around and about, obviously, for a few years, and um, you know, I've performed in Nottingham a few times, but gen- generally over the past like. I'd say like five years, my shows that I've done in Nottingham have been like on festival lineups. Yeah. So, which is obviously great. I mean, gosh, Nottingham, the very fact that I've been able to perform so much in Nottingham and every single time it's been on a festival or a support, just, you know, I just think sells how amazing Nottingham is, to be honest, because, you know, I don't know a city outside of London that has the amount of gigs and venues that Nottingham has. (laughs) Um, So it's like, you know, I mean, there's a festival every season in Nottingham that you can get onto as an artist. And, you know, I've kind of just been doing that, which has been so amazing. Um, but during lockdown, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about that in a bit more detail in a minute, but um, during lockdown, I just thought, man, you know, you, you take it for granted, I think a little bit, um, being able to just like go and do a festival, you know, being able to just go and do a show. And, I just thought I really, really wanted to do something where I could really let loose and really create a full show because I, uh, you know, when you're doing a festival, you've got like a 30 minute set, you're probably doing a line check, you know, and I keep it pretty simple for festivals. You know, it's like me, a guitar in a loop station generally. Um, And as, as you you know, you were in some of my first gigs, I used to have like a full band and the vibe was very different then, I think. And, you know, I've grown so much, I think, since since then. But with the new music that I'm working on, it just felt like it was the right time to start bringing in some musicians that I really love to like join me on, on stage and also just to create a vibe and create a whole show. Um, and so, yeah, I spoke to the lovely people at DHP and they uh, were really excited about it. And we're like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, let's get it in the calendar. But let's get it in the calendar for when we're pretty confident it's not going to get cancelled. <laughs> yeah. So we went for February, we went February 2022. Um, and yeah, I'm just like, it feels surreal. I mean, I had two shows that were supposed to be this month that got cancelled because you know for covid reasons and as disheartening as that is i have to say talking about doing a headline show is getting me through it <laughs> so, yeah so yeah so i'm really excited That's, yeah it's excellent like so especially you know after the last couple of years which i'm sure will come to sort of what you got up to during that period later mm-hmm. on but yeah when you mentioned that about this this gig sort of being the 10th anniversary and mm-hmm. yeah, it was only while I was like researching this episode 
that I realised, I thought I was looking back at, because the first time I saw you play was the the gig, the um, Parlour Tricks launch, I think it was, yes. at, at Contemporary. Contemporary. And yeah. it was only when I was looking back at that, I suddenly thought to myself, that was 2012, so that's actually 10 years next year. I was yeah. like, wow, where'd that go? Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly, In it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, and that was, I mean, that was an incredible gig and that, you know, it was a really real party vibe. I can remember it was, so I'd seen, um, I think I'd seen the, the Cardinal video, obviously, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, you know, Joe Dempsey and Ashley Loftus and people like that, which was a, a fantastic video. And uh, mm-hmm. the uh, then I've, I came along and I'd, uh, I'd chatted to Greg a bit. But yeah, that that gig at Paula, the Politics gig at Contemporary, this was such a party atmosphere, and uh, yeah, and it kind of was almost staggering that it was able to turn that what was sort of little cafe area yeah. most during the day into this like sort of bouncing place in the night. It so, was, I think, I mean, Contemporary wasn't long open. I think at that probably time. not now. Pretty, it was pretty new. I don't know how many years. It, I don't think it had been open even a no. year, or maybe it had just been over a year. But um, we, I mean that. I mean the other thing is like testament to Greg and Jack from Outlaw because yeah. I mean a month before that launch, I had never performed my own music in Nottingham <laughs> or anywhere uh, at all. You know, I got signed to Outlaw the week after I graduated from uni, <laughs> and. Um, and it's one of my favourite stories because Greg Lonsdale um, saw me perform at a house party like years before. I think it was like 2017, 20, 2007, sorry. He saw me perform. And um, I, he kind of remembered me from that. Um, and he was like a mutual friend of somebody else. And um, he called me in the January of 2011 and said, Rob, I'm starting an independent label I really, re- I remember your singing. I remember your songs and I'd really like to like talk to you about maybe coming, coming onto the label. And I was like, oh, Greg, that sounds great. But I'm in the middle of my dissertation because um, <laughs> it was like January. And he was like, yeah, okay. When do you graduate? I was like the 17th of July. And on the 18th of July, Greg rang me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, right, mate, did you graduate yesterday? I was like, yes he was like great come to Nottingham and listen to this pitch (laughs) and um I sat on Greg and Jack's balcony and they pitched the idea of doing an EP and bearing in mind at this time like I had no idea what an EP was (laughs) I was like like, yeah great yeah let's do it um and so we recorded this EP in Leeds which is where I was at the time and um yeah I'd never gigged my own music in Nottingham and in the December uh, there was a do you remember there used to be an acoustic night called Soundism yes oh yeah 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 Yeah. so there was uh, which I think I can't remember who ran that it was Adam Penford I think Uh, Adam Penford I didn't see that Pickering yeah yeah Adam Pickering yeah used to run Soundism and uh, you know was a friend of Jack and Greg and like put me on this lineup as like a you know, as a bit of a favour, put me on like the opening. It was like me <laughs> and Taurus Giles at the time. And, you know, we did at this point, at, at this point in time, I had like five songs 
that existed. Like I only had written <laughs> five songs with chords and everything. And so <laughs> I did this set, this set just with these five songs. And um, it was great and it went down really well. Um, and it was so much fun. But I, but you know, no one knew, like no one knew who I was. So it was like really nice to just do that show. And then um, basically the, the following week, the music video for Cardinal came out and Jack and Greg ran this huge campaign. Uh, it was like a sticker, a sticker campaign called yeah. the of Taxi Drivers. And that was like stuck all over Nottingham. And <laughs> yeah. They did, they just were so clever and they did such cool stuff. And basically the, my following in Nottingham increased so dramatically, so quickly um, in, in those five weeks since from that show, it's soundism to doing the launch. And the thing with the contemporary show is that we didn't do the, the, we couldn't get a venue because no one knew who I was. Yeah. Like I couldn't get, I wanted to do an EP launch and it was like, you know, it, it, no one would say yes, because of course, whenever you're trying to book a headline show, you've got to sell tickets, really. That's kind of how you get your, you know, worth. That's how, yeah. especially the promoters, you know, it's sort of the gritty side that not a lot of people, obviously you know about, but not a lot of people, you know, think about when they're going to see an artist is like, you know, the reason why this artist has got this booking is because they've got clout, you know, they've got something that goes, oh, this artist can sell out this venue, or this artist has the potential to sell well at this venue, so we're going to book them. When you've never been heard of, you've got one music video, <laughs> and your EP's not even out yet. Like, it's, um, you, it's, it's tricky to get a venue. And luckily, Not Nottingham Contemporary, which was quite new, were like, yeah, you know, um, we can have you, but you'll be in the bar. They said we could have the bar. So we were like, yeah, no problem, great. Uh, but it can't be ticketed because it isn't technically like a proper venue. Yeah. At that point. And um, so we we just promoted it and promoted it and promoted it. And we turned up and, and um, you can testify to this. It was rammed. Like it was so rammed, like up to the back door of the cafe like you couldn't get to the bar it was so full um and that was a real shock to me and it was on friday the 13th of january because it was three days after my birthday and i just couldn't believe it i was just stood on the stage i was wearing this purple um like polo shirt i remember <laughs> and um you know the the band the band were amazing yeah. um and we're having such a great time. And it was just one of those weird moments where you're kind of, it feels like quite fateful, you know, it feels like, yeah, this is good. This is good vibes. Like, this is what, I'm, this is what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm so glad you were there. I'm so glad you remember it as well. Cause it's, it's really special to me. So I'm yeah. glad. <laughs> it was incredible. Cause I think I'd seen um, Cardinal, Obviously, I think something like Mark Dell or someone. So I think he had a little, um, he had like Mark and I think Jared in it playing football right. fans. Yes. Um, and he and obviously I'd seen that. And then I'd, I'd spoken to Greg because mm. I, I was actually putting on a gig at the maze, putting together a gig at the maze. Yes. Which was actually the week after, I think. I think it was a week yes. older than that. Yeah. And so um, we got you on to play that. 
And obviously, yeah. Greg said, well, come down, you're playing this. It was like, yeah. Um, so, I mean, and even the gig we put on, and obviously it was like a sort of, it was one of these sort of gigs where quite a few uh, bands on and performers on in the maze where we were using both rooms. Mm. But so many people, I think so many people were, you know, coming out talking about your set and, it's like, it's like when I came to the gig, I thought, yeah, we, I thought we got this, this is something special. And I can't believe that, you know, we've managed to get him playing at our show. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. And, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, you wouldn't, I'll have to admit, you wouldn't have known that you'd never played like until a few weeks before in Nottingham. It's such a great gig. It was so much fun. And, yeah. And, I think a lot of it, a lot of the confidence came from just the energy of the, the, the crowd and that actual space. I think if it had been like two people that rocked up, I think you would have seen more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You would have seen me a bit less uh, confident. But the, uh, it was just great. And also because, you know, for me in that moment, you know, I had family there and I had friends there. I had people who'd been like supporting me. My friend Richard was like on the front row and Richard is the person who I was friends with Rich you know me and Richard were friends at school and um I got bullied so much at school and like I didn't really have friends at school proper until like year nine and Richard like made friends with me and he was so sick he was just like just one of those rare teenagers I guess that you meet who is so comfortable in their own skin and really doesn't care what anybody else thinks. <laughs> and he, he was like, yeah, man, you're a great singer. Yeah, you should do music. And he uh, used to, he played electric guitar. He was into his, he's the person who got me into like more rock music and blues music. And um, he bought me my first chord book. He bought me the chord book for James Morrison's first album called Undiscovered. And um, I taught myself my first chords using that chord book. This is obviously pre-Ultimate Guitar for anyone listening. <laughs> and um, yeah, and he was like in the front row and I was stood there playing guitar. And it was just one of those moments where you just feel like there's people in the room and they've just really got your back. Do you know what I mean? And like, and they've always had your back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it was like, how could you not be confident? You know, how could you yeah. not be like buzzing? Um, so yeah, it was so beautiful. And you know, really just the beginning, like the very, very beginning. And I think, you know, it's very rare to actually have a beginning like that. And um, so I'm really grateful. And the more I go forward in time, the more special I realized that actually was, you know. So yeah, it was yeah. great. Excellent. And then like you say, and then um we're now talking. 10 years later, it's still, yeah. I still find that way. I still feel like the 90s was 10 years ago, never mind. <laughs> 2012. So, <laughs> oh. um, but one, one of the things you mentioned a bit earlier when you were talking, obviously, is about um, playing in Nottingham and the sort of the festival scene in Nottingham, which is incredible. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about it is it's very um, DIY. Mm. It's like it very. It's like these festivals are very organic. They grow out of so many times. They seem to grow out of like a group of people getting together and saying, you know, there's 
there's some great gigs in there. So there's some great performers in Nottingham. There's some great venues. Let's get them together. And, you know, mm. we've seen things like the Hustle, Hoppy Hustle, um, mm. you know, where, where I think branch out. Uh, and then you've had sort of, you know, dot to dot. And of course, Splendor, which I think you've played probably all the stages at that. Yeah. Over the years, <laughs> I, think I've, I think I've seen you play all three. I remember the courtyard. And, yeah. um, and it's it's such a, like you say, it's so amazing that these pe- that people keep putting on and there's so much passion there. And uh, I think I've seen you mention before that there's just the connectedness in Nottingham that you don't get elsewhere when it comes to that. Yeah, that's so true. I think that, you know, it's, you know, when you grow up, you know, I was in Nottingham and the first festivals I did were in Nottingham. The first festival I ever played was Splendour on the Courtyard stage, um, I think. Um, I think because it was a long time ago, um, but I think uh, it's the first one that really was like a big outdoor festival, you know. And, yeah. and um, I played Splendor, I played Hockley Hustle. Hockley Hustle, my God, is one of my favorite, favorite festivals for that thing that you just said that it's so organic, it's so out of the concrete, you know. Um, and it's just got, I've never been to a festival like Hockley Hustle. And there are other festivals in the city that are similar to it, you know, um, that have sort of modeled themselves on it. But Hockley Hustle is the best and original, I think. It's just got the, the spirit of it is right. The fact that it's for charity, the fact that it's so many artists and that the fact that you've got like, you know, you're doing like a 30 minute set in Bradbury. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just like, yeah. <laughs> You're in a charity shop or you're, you're not in a music venue. My, some of my favourite sets at Hockley Hustle were as, as wonderful as it was to play like the contemporary and play like big music venues. You know, I did, um, one of my favourite sets was in Broadway. Like I played in Broadway and it yeah. was sick. Like the vibe was amazing. I played Vodka Revs. Like it's just <laughs> like nowhere and not when Vodka Revs had a stage like when it was just like they moved a table and put some (laughs) like crates on the floor and you stood on that it was just real do you know what I mean and it feels and and it just appeal and you know in a festival like that you're getting so many different genres not in a unapologetically multi uh, genre it's multicultural and it's unapologetic with that and unlike perhaps like other cities, and this is not to put down other cities, but to say that other cities actually become known for a specific genre, even if they have mixed sounds, do you know what I mean? They they sort of like known for like indie or rock or, you know what I mean? Nottingham's got it all. And it isn't really known for just one thing. Like the grime scene here is amazing. The rock scene's amazing. The R&B and rap scene's amazing. The soul scene, like a soul at the minute in Nottingham is popping. Like there's so much going off soul-wise. And, you know, all of those bands are welcome at Hockley Hustle. And all of those bands get booked or have been booked for Splendour. They've been booked for uh, Dot to Dot and they've been booked for Beat the Streets. And, you know, it's just like BBC Introducing. I mean, Dean Jackson, BBC Introducing is, you know, he champions all music for introducing. He doesn't lean into like just what he likes or anything like that. And it would be very easy to do that, you know, because there's so much here. Um, But I think 
because of that ethos, because we've got, you know, music, because we've got, you know, you, because we've got, um, uh, you know, all of these different, we've got, you know, music schools, we've got confetti. It's like, it would be a shame to filter it, but it would be easy to do. Yeah. And that's not happened. You know, it's just, it's just stayed diverse and, and, you know, as mishmash as possible. It's just everything. So, and that's the thing for me is growing, growing up in Nottingham and, you know, because of the environment I was in and the, the school I was at and, and not so much the school, but like the, you know, the generation I was in, let's say, yeah. I definitely wasn't sure that I was going to find like a, a place for myself, really. Um, and I think discovering the music scene here has really made me uh like I don't know I don't know what the word is like blossom I guess I don't yeah. know <laughs> like it's made me grow and thrive and you know try and not be afraid yeah. and I think that that's testament to how to the environment that we have here yeah I mean I don't think you can uh give a better bit a better praise to it than than to say that it that it allows people to do that you know mm. no matter what your style uh, your your passions are I mean one of like you said the hot hustle one of the things I love about that is that it literally doesn't let any space go unused yeah and it you know hot and I think one of the reasons as well hockey hustle maybe is um a bit better you know or not necessarily but one that stands out a bit more than others I think is because it it sort of some of the others are a little bit more spread out yeah, um, you know, particularly some of the, the bigger ones where they're involving, they've got to involve certain venues, so it can be. I mean, I yeah. love to branch out, but I found yeah. myself going from say, uh, stealth across to Antenna, and then, you know, all yeah. the way back again to sort of um, city centre. Well, Hockley Hostel, yeah. obviously, everywhere you, that whole area is just, it's just like a party zone. Because there's, yeah, you know, yeah. like, you know, there's people, there's stuff happening in the courtyards and the streets and, the, like I said, the shops, the cafes, and I mean, even I think in recent years, and I can't, I'm not sure if you may have been involved in it, but they, 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 they sort of launched the Young Hustlers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they've really em- embracing it and bringing in the new, the next generation, get them in now, and you know. They could pick up the baton when we've all got too tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We can retire and watch the show eventually. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'd just be nice when it can come back. Um, mm. So. Yeah. Awesome. And um, as well as obviously performing, I know that you've also been involved in um, the is it, it's Sheep Soup, the sort of yes. drama musical um organization i guess is, is the word and a lot along with uh, you know, uh nick harvey ben welsh and mm. others uh, uh ben i think we we had him on would have been last year when he did the um they did the online festival i'm not sure if you can oh, remember okay. that one i can't yeah, remember yeah, it off yeah. the top of my head but yeah and that obviously i think is it you're the sort of musical director of that organization yeah, so, well, yeah, Sheet Soup is a, yeah, musical theatre uh, 
company and basically they make musicals where well traditionally they've made musicals where the music uh, occurs naturally as part of the story so it might be set in an open mic night or um, it might be set in a recording studio or they're like their first musical was set in the council flat of a retired fictional Motown singer who self-medicated with <laughs> medicinal cannabis and <laughs> the, uh, you know all those natural run-of-the-mill everyday places where you come across music um, and I actually got involved with Sheep Soup as a fan because I know Nick from Television Workshop. I trained at Television Workshop as well. And uh, so did Ben. And um, I went to go see Mrs. Green. And I helped write one of the songs in it. There's like a sort of singing, sing-off battle that happens in that show. And I helped write some of the verses for it with Nick. But um, yeah, other than that, I'd not really had any hand in it. And then I went to go watch the show and I just loved it. And I thought it was so funny and it was so Nottingham. And I was just like, I really want to MD this. Like I had all these ideas about like harmonies they could do and ways they could like build the musical. And um, I sort of asked them if they would, I was like, I will come in and just do like a day for free. I just really love to like play with these songs basically. And they like bit my hand off. They were like, yeah, 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 come and do it. And I ended up getting involved as an MD for them. And then their second musical, which was called The Leftovers, um, they, they asked me in advance to MD it. But then Nick also asked me if I would co-write the music with him, um, to which I said yes, because <laughs> I love writing with Nick. And um, I had such a good time doing Mrs. Green. And The Leftovers, we wrote, we sort of developed for about two years. And um, I loved writing the music for that show. I learned so much about, and this is the thing, you know, when you're, when you're working in a slightly different discipline to like your main discipline, it all informs because I learned so much about um, like people and so much about like, how to like communicate for somebody else like you know really you're writing when you're writing these songs it's kind of like writing for another artist you you have to find their voice and the way that they might write a song and what they might have to say and how they might say it and also how you can move the story along and that also made me think a lot more as an artist about how I put my story out and how I can create how each song that you release is moving your story forward it is moving people's understanding of you and the way you're at and you're sharing more and more of yourself but it's you know before I kind of thought of songs as like yeah these are the songs and I'm just going to release these songs and now because of working on musicals I think a lot more about okay well what am I telling people about myself as a whole how did these songs in this order being released sort of create the world that I'm trying to make or whatever so you know it all all hands in and then now we're working on a musical which doesn't have a title yet um but it's about hoarding and by, by when I say it's about hoarding what I mean is it's about a character who has a hoarding problem um and that problem has gotten quite severe and it's divided her from her family and although hoarding is sort of comes up obviously quite a lot within the show the show is really about family and about our relationship to objects and memories 
Um, and writing that show has taken about two years. I mean, we're nearly sort of at the point where we're going to start um, sort of trialing it. I mean, we had a rehearsed reading at the National Theatre last week, which was amazing. Um, and that was sort of the first read through of the first and second act of the show with the music. Um, and yeah, this show has taught me so much about relationships and so much about um, emotional availability. You know, this character in this show is so guarded and so afraid. And I think as I've worked on it more and more, I've realized I've sort of realized how how I can be like that character, you know. Um, and you know, it's funny because I think people think that artists are like so connected to their emotions, are so able to be open, but actually, most of the time, especially from my perspective, the music is the thing that allows me to connect to my emotions because most of the time I'm ignoring them. <laughs> yes, like um, so you you sort of funnel it through your music doesn't necessarily mean that you are actually um, addressing it or acknowledging it you're sort of that's almost an escape from it maybe yeah or it's like for me it's like the tool that I use to process and so when you're not but the thing is if that's your only tool it means the only time you're processing is when you're writing a song yeah um and you know writing this show musically um, and the book writer Esther Coles who's just amazing so talented and so humble and so easy to work with um, has really sort of made me tap into really what is holding me back emotionally and I think a lot of that was fear and a lot of that was you know sort of unpacked I guess I guess traumas and like incidents and things that I just kind of have blocked out and focused on being positive and moving forward and um yeah this newest set of music I think has been greatly influenced by being part of that process and a lot of my life decisions have have been greatly influenced by working on on that show so I actually owe it so much already and it's not even really out um yeah so if it's an absolute flop i had a great time and i've learned so much (laughs) but it would also be great (laughs) it would also be great if other people liked it you know (laughs) yeah i think that's it's it's quite fascinating to hear that because obviously often you know we look we see look at shows from the outside and we take what we take from them and we you know you read reviews and you read analysis and things and you take the sort of the audience can take, and in a similar way, audiences can take a lot from a, a performance. But it's very interesting to hear what the the people the other side are taking from it, and for it to have such a profound impact on your life, I think mm. it's it's that's pretty that's a pretty big moment. Like you say, um, whatever happens with this show, um, as you said, I hope you know. Hopefully, it'll be. Um, the, cr- the crowds will enjoy it as much as you have enjoyed being part of it. Whatever happens with it, it's it's going to be something I think it's going to live with you from the sounds of it yeah. uh, forever. <laughs> so. Yeah, definitely. I think so. That's, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think as uh, sort of listening to some of your, you know, I think your, your newer stuff, like um, 
you know, I was sleeping on my own, which I think she newest. Yes. Dingle. And I think, and, and I love obviously uh, parlor tricks and the early music and I'm, you know, uh, straight and narrow for me is a song that has quite a lot of meaning because my young eldest sorry, son, he was like, when he was little, he was obsessed with that song. Really? Um, yeah, he, he absolutely loved it. Now, I can still remember, we, I've still got a, a picture we had of him with you at uh, one of the, it was at Splendour one year. Splendour. Yeah. Yeah, um, I remember and he was, taking that picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was so, he'd been going on and on about meeting you, but then he was so shy that we yeah. you know, oh, took oh. so much effort to get him. Um, but there's definitely, listening to you knew it, so I think, like you say, there's definitely more, feels like there's more of, of you in them mm. as, as a person, um, which I think is which is what you were talking about there. You, you're, you're telling more of your story maybe in the songs. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's been an interesting one. I mean, parlor tricks, and I'm, I'm thinking in February, I'm going to sneak a little bit of parlor tricks. I mean, I can't not play no. something from parlor tricks in February. Um, and straight and narrow, is a prime example of like, you know, that first EP um, and those first songs really that I was writing fully, um, they were so, I felt like at that time I was being so vulnerable because I was talking about things that I'd never really talked about. I was talking about, you know, friendships and relationships. And um, and I think the, the reason why I love Parlor Tricks is because I really didn't have much fear about that writing. I really had a lot of fear about how well it would do and how well I would do, but I didn't have uh, any fear about the writing. I really enjoyed writing it. And I, I think I was quite vulnerable really on, on that record. I mean, the, the Cardinals on there, which is about a relationship, Straight and Narrow is about, you know, friendships and family and, um, yeah, the uh, I think there's a song there called Heartbroken, which was about my relationship at the time. There was, uh, I wish I remember, oh, the other song was Underdog. And um, yeah, and all of those songs were so much fun to perform and they were so fun to record. Um, and then later that same year, I released another EP. It was a live EP called Learn to Fly. And that actually launched in the December of 2012, that launched at Bodega, where I'll be in February. And um, that's, that was a lot more about my ambition and about my sort of focus and drive and about the relationship that ultimately ended in the middle of that year. Um, and so, you know, I was a lot more um, ambitious at that point and so much more inspired about the future. There's songs on there called Learn to Fly, which is about going after what you want. There's a song called Over and Done, which is about that relationship being over and done. There's, a, there's a, uh, songs on there like Magnetic and uh, Playing with Fire. And all uh, when I think about that EP, it feels like such a different energy, you know, because I was in such a different mindset. Yeah. And then a few years passed, I did some gigs, I did shows. And then there was kind of a year where things felt like they were petering out. Um, there was a lot of personal things that were happening, a lot of sort of confusions and things that I just needed to work through. And so I didn't do many shows in 2015. And um, 
I was really itching to record, but by that point, Outlaw had changed. Outlaw was no longer a label, it was just managing. Um, and I didn't have a, a label, I didn't have the finance to do a recording really. Um, and I was working as a waiter full-time <laughs> in uh, Derby. And I, it, it was a crucial junction. It was a crucial junction, I think, at that point where you're making a decision between what you want to do and what you can do. Yeah. And I love being a waiter. I would like to put that out there. I love waitering. I have, have always loved it. Like, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why, because it's most people's worst nightmare, but I love it. Like, I love it. I love the people. I love the socialising. I love the stress. I love everything. Um, so... You know, I was like, I could just do this. I was offered a management position. I could just dip out and do this. But there's like a thing in you that goes, no, I've got things I want to say and there's things I want to do musically. And, and so basically what I did was I spoke to my friend Stella and my friend Johnny and they were in Leeds. And I was like, I really want to record one more EP. I just want to give it one more go. And um, so I was working full time at this restaurant. I was finishing at 11 p.m. I was getting the last train up to Leeds. I was going to, uh, it's in Bradford. We built a studio in the roof of an old church and we recorded um, till like three, four in the morning. And then I would come back the next day and work in the restaurant. And I did that for three months while we recorded what ultimately became the Rob Green EP. Yeah. And um, during that process, I'd written these three songs and I did a cover, a cover of Aswad Shine, if you remember that song. Um, and that was going to be the EP. And then in the last two weeks uh, of sort of our recording process, I'd written a song um, and it was called Blue. Yeah. And I played it to Stella just while we were waiting for the kettle to boil <laughs> in the studio, because it was freezing. We were in the roof, like I say, of this <laughs> it was so cold. I was waiting for the kettle to boil and I just played her this song that I'd been working on. And when I finished Blue, she looked at me and she was like, so wait a minute. <laughs> you're doing a cover and you're not recording that song instead. And I was like, yeah, well, that's quite personal. I mean, Blue was about this relationship that I, you know, it was a very difficult relationship and I'd never written about it before and I'd never really had the capacity to process all of the difficulties and the challenges and, you know, of, of that. And so I'd just written it really just for me. Like I said, I was using yeah. it as a tool to process things. So she was like, record it. And I was like, mm, everything in me was like, I can't, like, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't like I don't want to share this with people I don't want to have to gig this song like I don't know how I'm going to feel about it and it's so personal to me you know um and it will it will matter to me if people don't like it yeah and she was like that's exactly why you should record it <laughs> so after much persuasion and almost a full-on argument. Uh, Stella convinced me <laughs> to record this song. I'm so glad that she did. 
And the Rob Green EP, like I said, I, there was no kind of buzz about me at that time. It had been quiet for like over a year. And um, this was like when pre-orders, pre-ordering was like such a huge thing. People were still paying. This is like 2015, remember? So people were still buying music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Spotify was about, but people weren't quite vibes in with it. And it wasn't paying artists yet. Yeah. You know, all of that. So uh, I put it on pre-order on iTunes and we just bigged it up for January, February. Uh, and then the Blue Music video, uh, sorry, and that was it, is that I was going to make, there's a song on that um, EP called Headstrong. That was going to be the single. And um, again, I had a listening party and everybody at the listening party was like, Blue should be your single. <laughs> I was like, oh. And everybody was like, no, it's so personal. I don't want to, don't want to. And it's so weird. I can't even explain it really. It's like, why are you an artist if you're like scared of releasing your own music? Um, and um but I did I chose blue and then it meant we had to shoot a video and I wrote the treatment for this video and there was going to be this couple in the video and Lace Market Media who I was making the video with were like Matt from Lace Market Media was like why aren't you in the video and I was like well if I'm in the video I'd written it for like this man and this woman in this relationship and the treatment, if you've seen the treatment for the music video, if you've seen the music video, it's just like all set yes. in a house, it's actually shot in my house. And um, I got this man and a woman in a relationship and that was kind of what was happening in the video. And uh, Matt was like, why aren't you in it? And I was like, well, if I'm in it, I'm not going to be in it with a woman. So, and he was like, yeah. And I was like, so then I'm going to be like making it about me being in this relationship. <laughs> he was like, yes because that's what the song's about. That's probably what you should do. And, and it's funny because, remember, the only other video I'd done before was Cardinal, and I'm not really in that video. I'm in it in, like, a very small cameo trying to flag the taxi down. Yes, but, yeah. But that's it. So I'd never been in a music video before, and I was like, the first music video I'm going to be in is going to be a continuous shot music video, and I'm going to be, like, basically showing that I'm in a gay relationship. And again, remember, this is 2015. And even though it was only like six years ago, the narrative and the concept of being out and gay as a black person in, you know, music, there was no, there were no models yeah. for how that story goes and how you make that work. And there were plenty of horror stories, you know. So I was really scared. And I said to them, okay I'm gonna do it but the only way I'm doing it is if I if we could get like somebody to act with who's gonna make me really comfortable I was like I need somebody who I can like trust and who I'm really comfortable with and so Joe Dempsey who as you mentioned had been in Cardinal the music video I called him and Joe's Joe also went to workshop and it's just an yeah. amazing guy so lovely I called him and um was like hey Joe so listen I'm gonna send you this treatment <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you might be up for it and I sent it to him and he got back to me within like 20 minutes and was like yeah man looks good let's do it and um he at this point I didn't know he was shooting the latest season of Game of Thrones the last yeah. season of Game of Thrones so as far as I was concerned he was written out he was no longer in Game of Thrones um so it was interesting because he came, he fit me in he had like two days and we shot in one day at my house 
And it was in my house, it was me, it was Joe, and it was a crew of people. Ben Welch was there, um, Lucy Manning, Greg, and then Matt and Mark who were shooting. And the video is a continuous shot, but it, it does this huge, the house transforms in a huge way at the end of it. Um, and it was quite, we took like 30 odd takes. It was quite a few takes uh, to get it right. It took nearly all day. <laughs> and um, when the video came out, it did really well. It did really well because Joe was in it and it did really well because it was really well shot. Uh, I mean, Matt and Mark did an amazing job. Um, and I suddenly got all of this support and the EP, which was out the following month, because of all that attention and loads of pre-orders, Russia pre-orders, it got into like the pre-order chart and then it actually got into the iTunes R&B chart and the album chart, number three in the R&B chart and number 34 in the album's chart. And I had all, and I did the launch and the launch was at Rough Trade and it was so full of people. And I remember I'd not done a gig in like a year and a half. Yeah. Um, it was so emotional that whole week. I mean, it was an absolute blur, but it was so emotional. And to me, I was also a little bit afraid I would lose some fan base. I mean, at that point, I'd never talked about being gay on stage or in my music at all. It had all been very vague, you know? Yeah. And there is also a part of you that's afraid you'll lose fans. You know, it's not like, I mean, I'm not Beyonce. It's not like I have like millions of fans. Like if I lose fans, I will notice. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know I, mean? I was like, if a hundred people don't come anymore to the show, I will know about it. So, um, so anyway, and this has been such a long story. Thank you for listening to this. Call. Thank you for listening to my TED talk. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, we did the launch and it was full and the video got like tens of thousands of streams in like the first week. And I just suddenly realized how much I had been my own obstacle to being accepted and to being celebrated and to really creating something that so many people have resonated with. To this day, Blue is my most streamed song. And people come up to me and and talk to me about how they heard it at Pride or how they heard it at, um, on this playlist. And they decided, you know, they wanted to, they played it at their, um, you know, engagement party or whatever, because it was the thing that convinced them to come out or, and like I said, I'm not famous. So in my head, you don't expect to have that kind of impact until you're like adult, do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like to, <laughs> to have impact with anyone is always special. But to know that it's helped people or, or led to people having conversations that I used to be terrified of having is feels like, I wouldn't say it was worth going through the experience because it wasn't great, but it does make it feel like there was something great that came out of that negative experience. Yeah. And, and so that brings us to the present day, because what happened after that EP came out is that I got loads of bookings. I did 150 shows in a single year, which I would <laughs> never do again. It was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot. I did the BBC proms. I supported Earth, Wind & Fire. Um, I, did, I did so much. I supported a wicked blues artist called Eric Bibb. That was my first ever support tour, and it was just wonderful. Um, I got to support, kind of support Michael Bublé. I got to support... Um, uh, Ellen Knight, loads and loads of different artists. And I learned so much in such an intensive period of time and really honed my live 
performance skills. And um, then we went, and then I was in the middle of the Whitney Houston hologram tour as the support. And I finished the UK dates and they really liked me and they extended me to do all of Europe. But before I could get on to the Europe leg of the tour, we went into lockdown. Yeah. And, hey. and the rest of history. Yeah. And that... <laughs> that's, that's my life, Darren, up to this point. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, uh, I mentioned to you before we started that, you know, one of the reasons I do this podcast the way I do is to let people tell their stories rather than just answering questions. Mm. And I think that's what, I mean, you know, you talked about there, you know, a, a conversation slash argument in a, a cold converted church roof <laughs> was a pivotal moment in whether or not, arguably in whether or not you're still doing what you're doing. And certainly yeah. in the way, you know, you know, you may still have been doing this, but quite possibly in a very different way. That's right. You know? So, and, you know, and there's also that, you know, like that was a story that, that, like you said, went from questioning where you go next to filming a video, um, you know, with a member of the Game of Thrones cast. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, but like, right, so you bought that, as you said, that brings us now to um, the, I guess, the elephant in the room, which is the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, that's a topic that's that's come up Um Every episode, pretty much every episode for the past year or so. Yeah. But, as, but as somebody who, as you said, prior to that had done what's not far off the equivalent of what a gig every two, three days, mm. to then not being able to perform, what was that that like? And how do you? Because you you're obviously someone that performs. You you know you're working at you do stage shows and you're involved in that and putting you know, musical performance together for theatre. So what was that like to have that all just dra- pulled away? And it was pulled away very quickly. We went into lockdown in like, it was like announced and then it was within three, four days. So there's not a lot of time to get your head around it or anything. No. And the thing is, is that, I, you know, as, as you probably remember, when we went into lockdown, there was going into lockdown, but then there was the few weeks before anybody really accepted that it was going to be a long-term thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, legitimately, we went into lockdown and it was like, we're not doing the Belgium leg of the tour. We're not doing the Slovakian leg of the tour, but you can come and join us when we get to Czech Czech Republic. You can come and join us when we get to France, when we get to Spain. Don't worry about it. We'll book you flat. Do you know what I mean? And that was like three weeks of them thinking that this tour was going to happen and then it was like it's not going to happen but don't worry we'll reschedule it for the summer and then it was like "Mm, that's not going to happen don't worry it'll be next year I was supposed to support Lionel Richie in the June at Blenheim Palace and it moved three times and it just kept getting kicked like a couple of weeks, couple of weeks, couple of weeks. And then they just threw it into the following year. And then the following year it was also cancelled because we were still in lockdown. So then it moved again. And um and then got cancelled ultimately. And um I think that the way I would describe what it was like was it was like driving into a brick wall. I was moving so fast at that time. I had so much going on. I can't even tell you 
how stretched emotionally, spiritually <laughs> I was at that time. And when some, the one thing that never happened, like, like, I, like I said to you uh, before we started uh, recording the show was my energy prior to lockdown used to be, I used to go and go and go and go and go until I couldn't go anymore. And I would stop because I physically couldn't continue. And I would recharge my batteries just enough so that I could keep get going again. And again, the only time I was really processing was when I was writing music. But when you're doing that many shows, you haven't got time to write. And when you do have time, you're resting from having performed. <laughs> having performed. So um, my schedule was packed. And, and literally this morning, I, I looked at what my schedule looked like before lockdown. And I just can't even imagine how I was even making that work. Like I, some of the things, I've got like four things in one day and they're all big things. And the next day is the same and the next day is the same and the Saturday is the same. And like Sunday, I've only got one thing on and I used to consider Sunday a break. Like it, <laughs> it was just insanity. Like, so I was just like, what happened in lockdown is like most people, I had to stop. There was literally yeah. nothing I could do. And live streaming's all right. It's all right, but it isn't the same. And it's like, it's like a nicotine patch. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it, yeah, it scratches the itch of like performing, but you don't get any of the sense of connection or the sense of like presence yeah. that you get in, in, a, in a live show. And, you know, some of the festivals I was, a lot of the festivals I was booked for obviously cancelled. Some of them uh, went online. Um, in that sort of weird eat out to help out limbo period, um, I did actually a live show. I performed at a homegrown festival, which is held at Knott's Arboretum. Uh, I closed it at the end of August, yeah, uh, which was surreal. Um, and then two weeks later, we went into full lockdown again. Um, and I guess the way I would describe the first half of lockdown was me completely unpacking all of these things that I just kind of shut away while I was moving at a million miles an hour. And what I ultimately realized was that I needed to develop a better way to manage my emotions and process them so that I could enjoy my life. Because it's very easy when you're moving that quick to convince yourself that you're running towards things and not in actual fact that you're running away from them <laughs> or ignoring them and using busyness to not do the work that you know yeah. you need. And I no longer had the distraction. And so what the second half of lockdown was like was really what I, what I would describe as touching the walls of my real emotions. And a lot of that came from really looking at my attitude towards masculinity and my masculinity. And, you know, again, I always thought, I'm not like that. I'm not hyper-masculine. I'm not like, you know, closed to being open. 
but actually there are things that you pick up that you're not even aware of yeah ideas and ideals that you pick up about what you're allowed to feel and um i read this really great um uh, article which was by dr renee brown but there's a quote in it where she's talking about uh boys she's talking about masculinity and she says um at the age of around 11 the culture of the way we raise men begins to teach men if they haven't already been taught that the only emotion they're allowed to express is anger which is why you know when i was a teenager at school if someone was you know ex- ang- angry they were angry and if they were sad they were so annoyed you know and if they were excited even they'd be so excited so gushed you know they'd be like a real aggressive energy to it it would never just be happiness in its purest form you know it'd never just be sadness or disappointment or fear it was always aggression and what she says is at that age we teach boys to squeeze all the spectrum of human emotion because you know there's no emotion that's just female or just male you know it's they're just human so all of these emotions we have to squeeze them through this really narrow aperture which is just anger and at that same age is when the suicide rate quadruples in men and she goes on she says some brilliant things in that article but that really stuck with me it made me realize that I actually have to learn to to name my emotions. I actually relearn how to label them, you know? Um, yeah. Because the amount of times I'll go, oh, that's really annoyed me. I'm like, it hasn't annoyed me, actually. I'm really disappointed. I feel really betrayed or I feel really hurt by that. It's, it's just, I never used to use that language. Like, I just didn't use it. and actually using it when you actually say the word and you actually call it what it really is like your chest unclamps it's like for me anyway it was like oh that's the word (laughs) it just felt amazing and it was like a an epiphany you know I don't know like a choir like burst out and and I don't know the clouds parted and suddenly it was like I'd learned a whole new skill that beyond writing music that would allow me to like express myself yeah and then I started writing music and I hadn't written music all through lockdown because I just didn't feel like it I just wasn't in and um suddenly it was like oh I really want to write something but I was also terrified I was also scared of writing because I didn't know if I was forcing it or I just didn't know if I was going to have a vibe and I had a writing session with Tom Prendergast um who is was basically a producer friend of a friend if you like um a guy called Adam Taylor he's a wicked artist he's called ADMT I was like oh I work with this guy called Tom and I sang some backing for Adam on an acoustic video and I met Tom there because he was playing guitar for him and Tom was like, oh, you should do a writing session. And I was, I kind of booked this Zoom writing session, you know, and I thought to myself, well, it'll be what it is. And God, maybe it won't be the vibe. I don't know. It's a lot of pressure, but we'll see. And it was great. Sleeping on My Own was the first song that we wrote. And 
we wrote it pretty much in one sitting. Um, and looking back at it now, I realized that it was because I had unlocked this uh, cage. <laughs> and actually, I was I, actually all of the emotions were right there and ready to speak, you know. And yeah. so writing that song was so easy. And Tom was just amazing. To this day, like, I don't know how he did it. That I don't know how. And he's such a great writer, you know. I didn't sit down and write every lyric myself. We were talking about the subject and talking about the things I wanted to say. And we, you know, vibes off each other. And this song just, like, came. And the second song was a song called Talking to My Demons, which I wrote with uh, Riley Wilson, who was a guy that I met on Instagram. Um, who was a writer and um, he's wicked. Wrote the song with him. Tom produced that song. And old me would have been like, right, I'm going to record all these songs and I'm going to pick from like 10 of them and then figure out whatever. And, you know, it would be really precious. And I think that attitude, that sort of perfectionist attitude is one of the reasons why I haven't released as much music as I probably could have because, you know, I, I was so wrapped up in the idea of getting it right and also wrapped up in the idea of trying to control what emotions I share and what emotions yeah. I share. And um, I released Talking to My Demons and it did well, it did okay. And it was great just to be releasing something. And then Sleeping On My Own came out in September. That's also the closest I've ever released things. I've never just released and released and released songs. Yeah. Normally like one a year, <laughs> one every three years. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Ridiculous. Like the goose that laid the, well, not golden egg. And, uh, and uh, yeah, this Sleeping On My Own came out in the September and it has done better than any song I've ever released in terms of the, the streams. You know, it's been streamed like nearly 13,000 times in just a couple of weeks. Um, DHP, we had this conversation because I did a support for them in August. I uh, supported Tony Hadley and they were like, Rob, we should get you in for a headband show. And I was like, yeah, I really want to do one. And they're like, great, how about February? So then we did, so we did that. <laughs> and obviously that's now announced. Uh, I recorded an acoustic version of... Um, sleeping on my own and it's beautiful I can't wait for it to come out actually because the the uh, got like some backing vocals on it and it's really stripped and again that song means so much to me and um, I'm so glad that we've gotten to do like an acoustic version yeah um, and that'll be out with a video next month um, the artist there's a guy called Matt Searston who's designed the artwork for it who's just wicked and I guess what I'm saying is is that I'm realizing that what actually happens when you release your music or you share your thoughts or your ideas really doesn't matter as much as you just sharing them. Like just open up, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, and I'm saying that to you, I'm saying it to me, I'm saying it to everyone. I think like the, the preciousness serves no one and you know, actually, we're in we're in a time in the music industry where it's very easy to release music, and your if your motivation isn't just to share your music as an artist, like you're kind of missing the point. <laughs> and I'm saying this to me as much as I'm saying this to anybody yeah. who wants to, does it. You know, um, and 
I've made so many more relationships, so many more connections and all of the fears and all of the resistance that I felt to being open and being honest is kind of falling away the more I write and the more I share. So I can't wait for the show in February. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I really think I'm going to be stepping on to the stage as a in a very different mindset and knowing how different it was between parlor tricks and learn to fly and how different it was between learn to fly and the rob green ep this is like six years it will be since the last ep yeah and it will be 10 years since i started and i get to do it at home so <laughs> i can't wait it's going to be amazing. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I don't think I can think of a better way to wrap things up than that. <laughs> I mean, that's, like I said, it's, it's it's interesting that, I mean, you know, that you had such a, I, I guess, a profound time, like you said, that for everyone, I guess, we all had to slow down. I mean, yeah. I guess the question, do you think, you know, had none of this with the lockdown has happened do you think you would have slowed down or do you think you maybe would have just kept going till you ran yourself into a a wall and I think if lockdown hadn't happened yeah I would have hit a wall that's what that was the pattern that was the way that yeah. I was before and I also didn't know how to I didn't know how to enjoy having a break that like even when I had a break even when I went on holiday I didn't know how to just lock off and enjoy it And that's a real shame. That's a real shame because that actually comes from guilt. It comes from the guilt that I think a lot of freelancers and artists and creatives and um, anybody who's self-employed really feels that there's a guilt to having a break. It's like I should be working or I could be working and I'm not. Um, But actually, if you don't have a break, you will be forced to have a break and you won't get to enjoy it then because you'll be mashed up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) so yeah it's it's weird to say that it was a good thing that happened because it wasn't obviously lockdown was as a result of a global pandemic yeah. and that was not a good thing but to but it, I think it would be fair to acknowledge that it was the series of those events that has changed me in a good way definitely and I think has made me it's re-energized me in just a completely new way and it's changed the way that I write music and it's changed the way that I perform and it's it's changed everything so I think it's for the better but we'll see (laughs) but it it definitely sounds like you've got a real sort of excitement about what lies ahead you know now that you can get back out there and like you said, you mentioned the cycle, but, you know, ultimately you, you, keep, you repeat that cycle, but eventually you can't keep repeating that cycle. And eventually it would have, you know, in some yeah. way or another crashed and burned. And what we've That's seen, right. what can happen, um, you know, in, what, in all walks of life to people when they do crash and burn. So I think the mm-hmm. fact that, the exactly. fact that you've, you now are there now, and like you, you even mentioned yourself, you would not, there's no way now you would take on the kind of um, workflow that you were taking on before, you know. Absolutely and not. Mm. So it's, it sounds very, very exciting times ahead. Um, mm. 
I'm looking so, forward to it. So is is uh, are there any plans to, to sort of try and get out there before February, or is the plan now to work towards that and keep keep it and, and unleash all this new performances on the world in February? So there's a potential that I might be doing Beat the Streets, oh. um, which will be in January. Um, but obviously that is dependent on many things. It's dependent on whether they actually book me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's dependent on whether it actually goes ahead, you know, yeah, because it will be straight after January, you know. Um, but I'm hoping they will. I've only, uh, the last time I did Beat the Streets, I got to do Rock City Main Stage, which was uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I don't know where they might book me, but they sort of started putting their feelers out to artists being like, would you be available and blah, blah, blah. So it might be that one. I was supposed to do a show during lockdown. One of the things that I did was I collaborated with Natalie Duncan um, for the Young Hustlers uh, album that was be- the Hustlers album that was being made yeah. instead of Hockley Hustle. You know, they made an album, a collaborations album where different artists collaborated together and uh, from Nottingham and made songs, original songs for this album. Me and Natalie wrote one and recorded one. Um, and there was going to be a gig where all of the artists got together and performed the songs uh, in December but at Metronome. But it looks like that might not be happening. Um, but if that happens, it'll be great. And if not, that'll be happening next year, I think. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it'll be before the headline show. So as always... So I was supposed to do a show uh, a week ago at uh, Malt Cross and that got cancelled because of co- because the organiser sadly got COVID. Yeah. It's a real shame, um, but he's fine. Um, yeah. And uh, it's just one of them. It's just one of them. I think like I'm trying what oh, any gig that happens before February will be a bonus. Yeah. But yeah, I'm putting a lot of my eggs in that basket. I think. Yeah. I'm not... putting a lot of my energy. In um, it's it's. I'm not sure why I'm expected anyone to be able to um, say with much certainty about anything happening over the winter. Because as you yeah. say, even if things stay open, like you say, that um, you know people are still, um, you know, getting testing positive, and I've known people that have, have tested positive for it over the last few weeks. So it's still out there, um, and and yeah. we're, obviously we're going into a very. Um, I it's a time of the year, time. you know. We, we already know what um, what what it's usually like at Christmas. I mean, I've there's, there's a flu going around. I've had, I've already had that horrible flu that went around. Yeah, the not COVID flu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that took God. me off my feet for a weekend, um, oh, and, and we just God. don't know what's like you said. So, I guess I mean it would be great if some if you know beat this beat the streets can happen because it's it'll be so great to just see that you know nottingham like that again yeah we, mm. we, it's been so long since we've had that um you know the, the street party type vibe that we get from those events it would just be so That's nice that. to see something like that and it'll be it'll be that kind of seeing something like that i think will give us all that boost that we're we're getting through this I think. Yeah. So yeah. definitely. But February, I mean, like you say, this looks really exciting. It's I mean, you know, Bodegas are lovely. Everyone knows Bodegas a wonderful, lovely venue. Mm. Um and it's like 10 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not insane. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. It's Excellent. Really 
Right, well, it's been fantastic to talk to you, and uh, thank you for being, you know, so open uh, about everything. It's been it's been fantastic, and I think people, I think it will, I think it will be interesting to people. I think it might be really helpful as well, you mm. know, to people because we've all. It's been a tough time, and I think it can be inspiring to hear mm. stories of people, you know, coming out the other end of it with yeah. renewed passions and. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. It's been great. So a massive thanks to Rob Green there for taking time out to chat with us and for being so open about the things he's been going through, his processes, uh, talking about sort of the impact lockdown had on him. I thought it was a fascinating conversation. Hopefully you all enjoyed it. If you want to know more about what Rob's up to and check out his music, etc., go to robgreenmusic.com. That was all you can make links to his songs, including... Uh, his new song sleeping on my own which i highly recommend you check out uh, and links to other videos blue obviously which we talked about there was such a pivotal song in his career and there's also as he said he will be performing at the bodega on february the 18th which promises to be an excellent show so grab your tickets for that if you want to get down next week my guest is fran from Tentacle Games. Uh, Tentacle Games are an indie custom adult toy company in Nottingham, set up during lockdown. Uh, so I had a chat with Fran about how the company got started, her background in sort of film props and special effects, and uh, sort of talked about the kind of products they make and catering for some of the more marginalised uh, communities, such as LGBTQ uh, people with sort of disabilities and special needs and things and in and some of the other issues within the uh, sex toy industry as well which was a fascinating chat so check that one out next week as ever you can find all episodes of not what i'm talking about at ngdigital.podbean.com uh, keep up to date with what we're up to at facebook.com forward slash not what i'm talking about including future gig uh, guest announcements and the like and follow us on twitter at ngdigitaluk so thanks for listening please let us know what you think of the podcast give us a review uh, and share the podcast around uh, thanks for listening